This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Rule of Law series with our own Alex Cortez bringing us an unusual story today. It's about baseball and about a player that you likely haven't heard of named Kurt Flood. He grew up in Oakland in the Bay Area, we should say, really, with Frank Robinson. Robinson, a right-hand batter. Long drive to left field. And Ricky Henderson. Joe DiMaggio. And all kinds of great baseball players came out of the, the rich baseball culture of the San Francisco Oakland Bay Area. You're listening to the voice of political columnist George Will, whom you may not know is perhaps even more passionate about his baseball writing. Kirk Flood grew up in the 40s and 50s. And in the 50s, he became a minor league player, largely in the South, which is where most minor league teams were, because most major league teams were in the North. And he experienced the desegregated South. This was the South before the public accommodation section of the 1964 Civil Rights Act was passed. He would travel with his teammates on the team bus. They would go in the front door of the restaurant to get food, he would be handed food out the back door. He would relieve himself on the side of the road because he couldn't use the restrooms. And one day after a game, the players threw their uniforms in a pile and the equipment manager took a broomstick, picked up floods with it and sent it to a black dry cleaner for them to clean it. Kurt also saw white and colored water fountains for the first time and assumed that the colored one perhaps had ginger ale in it. All of this he had never experienced before growing up in the West. He he didn't, but you learn awfully fast. The Cardinals that he joined happened to have three other particularly fierce African Americans who'd also experienced this and nursed an understandable grudge about it. One was Bill White, first baseman, who went on to be president of the National League, and two others went on to be Hall of Famers, Bob Gibson, the pitcher from Omaha, Nebraska, and Lou Brock from I can't remember where. But anyway, they'd all experienced this in the South, and they all played with a particular intensity, unquestionably in part because of the fires that had been stoked within them by the injustice they experienced. And Kurt would add that the injustice wasn't limited to the South. When the then World Series hero tried to rent a particular house in San Francisco, the owner threatened to hold it hostage at gunpoint before letting a black man move in. And rather than find another house, Kurt sued him. I think that the notoriety that undoubtedly going to be involved here will make people aware, if nothing else, that that prejudice is is not only confined to the southern part of our United States, and if they if they move their mustache and look under their nose, that they find it right here at home too. Kurt Flood was for many many seasons a premier outfielder. Most of the years with the St. Louis Cardinals. Batting second and playing center field, number 21, Kurt Flood. He was awarded a gold glove that's given by Major League Baseball to the 
person considered the premier defensive player at that particular position. Now to be a gold glove center fielder is not chopped liver. That is a big deal in baseball. I did play in three World Series and I won the Golden Glove Award seven times and that is not easy when you play the same position as Willie Mays. <laughs> I hope they remember some of the some of the great things, the great times that that uh that we had. Well many haven't or that he was a three-time all-star, batted over 300 in six seasons and once went a whole season without a single error. Instead, many remember this. Late in his career with the Cardinals, what turned out to be late in his career with the Cardinals, they decided to trade him to Philadelphia. And he said, uh, no, actually, I don't want to go to Philadelphia. Hurt had been in the city of St. Louis with the Cardinals for 10 seasons and liked it there. Philadelphia was an awful team and known for its racism. Now I'm going to challenge the reserve clause, which had been integral to baseball since time immemorial. All it said was that once you signed with a team, you were that team's property until they decided to trade you or release you, and there was no third option. Here's one of Kurt Flood's lawyers, Arthur Goldberg. He's owned by the team that first employed him or the team to which that team sells him. Kirk Flood said there's something wrong with this because it denies to a category of Americans, of whom I am a part, the basic, what should be the basic American right to negotiate the terms of employment with the employer of your choice. Should one person be able to own another person for his entire life? Well, do they... Abraham Lincoln solved that problem for us, didn't he? Kurt Flood says the present system makes baseball players slaves. You're a man who makes $90,000 a year, which isn't exactly slave wages, what you were taught to that. Uh, a well-paid slave is nonetheless a slave. He said, I won't go to Philadelphia, interrupted a lucrative career at the peak of his prowess, Foregoing, Philadelphia's offer to pay him $100,000, $680,000 in today's dollars. Money that the high-spending player desperately needed to pay his ex-wife child support. He was such a good center fielder, which means he played the biggest part of the outfield, which means as you grow old, your capacity declines, so he was taking a risk with the perishable asset of baseball talent. You seem to think that there are things more important than money, obviously. I pride myself for several things, of which one is integrity. Me as a human being, I must stand up for that principle alone. Anyway, uh, he challenged the reserve clause. In court. And when we come back, you'll hear the rest of this story, Kurt Flood's story, the Rule of Law series here on Our American Story.
This is Our American Stories, and we return to Kurt Flood and his story of challenging baseball's reserve clause, which made a player his owner's property for as long as they wanted. I knew that, it, that the reserve clause in my contract was illegal, and I thought that I was the one to make the difference in, in our contracts. Legally, a contract must have a beginning and an end. But the reserve clause perpetuated this year after year, even though you only had a one-year contract. That clause in your contract perpetuated it until you died. As a matter of fact, if they resurrected Babe Ruth, the Yankees would still own him. Uh, That's how ironclad that clause in the contract was. I spoke with Marvin Miller, who was the executive director of the Players Association at the time. And he said, Kurt, I want you to go back to California and I want you to think about what you're getting ready, what you're getting yourself in for, because this is going to be a, a fight to the finish if, if, in fact, that's what you want. And I guess there's something about suing the kind of people that own baseball teams that it's kind of frightening. These are really powerful men. Not only do they own baseball teams, but they, they own everything else in this hemisphere. His owner with the Cardinals was Gussie Bush, the Bush of Bush beer. Here's what Marvin Miller told him. You will never have another job in baseball again, ever. You understand that, don't you, Kurt? It almost didn't matter what I said. I realized that this is really a man of principle here. After Marvin spent most of the time trying to convince him what a mistake he was making personally, concluded it by saying, you're the answer to a maiden's prayer. You're the guy I've been looking for. This is Kurt Flood, baseball's Bolshevik. He was public enemy number one. Baseball owners say the move could spell disaster. There's no question about it. It's the worst thing that has ever happened to baseball. I also thought they're going to crush him. On May 19, 1970, Kurt Flood testified in the U.S. District Court of New York. His former Cardinals teammates happened to be playing in New York that day, but not a single one of them appeared at the courthouse to support him. In fact, not a single current MLB player made an appearance including fellow black players like Hank Aaron, Willie Mays, and Frank Robinson. All were afraid of their owners. Only former players showed up, and among which was Kurt's hero, whose jersey number he adopted when he was in the minor leagues, and who had taken a stand of his own. 1944 in Fort Hood, Texas. This was 11 years before Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus in Montgomery, thereby kicking off the Montgomery bus boycott and igniting the career of Martin Luther King. Uh, In 1944, Lieutenant Jackie Robinson refused to go to the back of an army bus in segregated Texas, was court-martialed but vindicated. So baseball has been very important to the establishment of rights, not just racial rights, but rights. Jackie approached Kurt at the plaintiff's table and whispered in his ear, keep your head up, you're doing the right thing. And Kurt started crying. 
The presiding judge, though, disagreed and ruled against him, but undeterred, Flood appealed it to the Second Circuit, lost again, and appealed it a final time to the U.S. Supreme Court. Continuing the case came at a great personal cost. It complicated his lawyer's recommendation that he file bankruptcy to deal with his mounting personal debt. Filing bankruptcy would have given the bankruptcy trustee the power to resolve all litigation, which would have included the baseball case. Kurt's choice not to do that says to me, I'm not going to settle this case. Not to make all my financial problems go away. I gave my word. I'm going to see it through. And he did. The Supreme Court agreed today to hear arguments that professional baseball is a business which must be subject to the antitrust laws. The case not only challenged the reserve clause's potential illegality of being a never-ending contract similar to slavery in Flood's view, but it also challenged baseball's exemption from antitrust laws that would otherwise prevent a monopoly like Major League Baseball from mandating that every single team have these clauses and for all to blackball Kurt from exploring the market through free agency. Here's Kurt's wife, Judy Pace. Kurt would say, we have been subsidizing the owners. We just can't even go out and find out what am I really valued at? What do I need to be paid if I'm getting seven consecutive gold gloves? What is my value? We thought getting $20,000 a year was a fair share. Because of baseball's monopoly status, that's all that players like Flood could imagine. A status they were challenging that was granted to baseball by that very court. In a 1922 ruling written by Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes. In a suit arising from a conflict between the major leagues and the federal league, which had grown up to challenge the major leagues, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, well, baseball is not a business in interstate commerce. He declared that the business is giving exhibitions of baseball, which are purely state affairs, and that baseball is something above the reproach of business. It is a sport. Which is preposterous. Uh, the great sports writer Jim Murray of the Los Angeles Times once said, if baseball is not a business, then Microsoft or General Motors is a sport. And if baseball, a business where two teams from two different states play each other and where fans from multiple states buy tickets isn't interstate commerce, how could what a farmer named Roscoe Filburn did possibly be? Roscoe Filburn was the Ohio farmer who raised grain on his farm for use on his farm. It would never enter interstate commerce. He'd use it to feed his chickens and and other animals. The Supreme Court said, no, it doesn't matter. You have exceeded your quota under the federal agricultural quota system. A Depression-era law that thought the government would know how to run farms. Because just by 
growing the wheat and using it on your farm. It means you didn't go into the interstate market to buy your feed for your animals, and therefore you have affected interstate commerce. Therefore, the federal government can pretty much regulate anything it wants by claiming a significant effect on interstate commerce. But we stray from baseball into constitutional law. Yes, we do, George. Perhaps unexpectedly so, but also quite positively. Our courts may not always get things right, as we saw with Philburn's case, but at least we have courts. We have a rule of law where laws that we collectively pass rule the day. Or at least we attempt to have them rule the day. It can be a sticky process, and the courts can be wrong, and the passage of time confirms that they're often wrong. But we know that we can work it out in a publicly agreed-upon process. You know, it's sometimes said that Americans don't do political philosophy because we've never created the equivalent of Locke's Second Treatise on Government or Hobbes' Leviathan. Actually, Americans do political philosophy all the time. They just do it in court cases. That Kurt Flood or Roscoe Filburn are able to sue the powers that be is a remarkable reality, especially in the context of thousands of years of human history where they couldn't. And even today, there are no such things called courts or laws in countries like China, North Korea, Cuba, and Russia, at least not real ones. In such places, the rule of the day is not the rule of law, but the rule of the ruler. Anyway, he lost. In part because, in large part because, Oliver Wendell Holmes had a singularly bad day. And a good bit of his career perished with his legal case. In 1976, there was a challenge mounted to the reserve clause. It was submitted to an arbiter. The arbiter says, yeah, the reserve clause is uh, illegal. And baseball changed instantly. Free agency was now a possibility by players. They could shop around for a team the same way the rest of us do. We're finding our work and everything else in our lives. And boy, as George Will write, it would have an impact. That story, after the break, Kurt Flood's story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. And by the way, to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our free newsletter, and we'll send you our five best stories each week in print and in audio form. Just go to ouramericannetwork.org, give us your email, and we'll send you our five best stories every week. And now let's return to the impact caused by the courageous stand of this one player against the big league. As soon as they struck down the reserve clause, the Cassandras came out of the woodwork and there were loud lamentations and rending of garments across the land. 
as the baseball owners who never missed an opportunity to miss an opportunity proved themselves wrong again. They said this will mean that all the good players will go to the rich teams and it will be the end of competitive balance. They were 180 degrees wrong. Competitive balance immediately began to improve. The ensuing 1978-87 to 87 decade of baseball saw 10 different teams win the World Series, which had never happened before. And before 1990, not a single team had gone from being the worst in the league one season and being the first in the league the next season. But the Twins and the Braves did it in 91 and the Phillies in 93. So much for competitive balance. Kurt Flood came back briefly after his aborted trade, but his career was essentially over. It's rather nice that he played in St. Louis, not far from the courthouse dome. You can see it today right over the outfield fence from the New Bush Stadium, where the original Dred Scott case was settled. Dred Scott was the slave who had lived for a while in a free state and said that by virtue of having lived in a free state, he should be declared free. The Supreme Court under Justice Taney in 1857 tried to resolve America's racial dilemma and again made an awful hash of it, brought on the Civil War and catalyzed the career of Abraham Lincoln by saying no African-American has or ever shall have any rights that a white person is obligated to respect. Which is why when I wrote about Kurt Flood years ago, I referred to him as Dred Scott in Spikes. Because they both lost, but both sparked a movement that ultimately won, even if they never benefited from it. The outcome which was that we are a market society. We believe in the freedom for capitalist acts between consenting adults, to use a phrase coined by the, the late, great Robert Nozick. So the national pastime was suddenly, and to its great discomfort, but its ultimate prosperity was made congruent with the national premise, which is that People should be free to contract with one another in cooperative ventures, even if it's called Major League Baseball. The biggest deal in baseball history finally went through today as the San Francisco Giants signed free agent outfielder Barry Bonds to a six-year, $43.75 million deal. Now, Justin Verlander has signed a seven-year contract for $180 million. Leighton Kershaw has agreed to a new seven-year, $215 million contract. What Kurt Flood did was give players leverage. If you have no leverage, you have no power to compel owners to share a larger portion of the value that the players create. No one that I know of has ever bought a ticket to a ballpark to see an owner. Uh, they go to see the, the players. Now, I'm, I don't want to sound too Marxist here about the labor theory of value, but even allowing for the fact that the entrepreneurship and the scouting and all the rest and the marketing that goes into the management side of baseball does create value, still, most of the value is created by the players. Therefore, what the Dred Scott-Kurt Flood decision did was give the Major League Baseball players leverage just at a time 
No one could have seen this when something else was going to happen that was going to make an enormous difference to salaries, and that is the explosive growth of local broadcast revenues. The era of baseball prosperity was just around the corner with cable television and super stations such as TBS, Ted Turner broadcasting his Braves, the WGN broadcasting the Cubs, which WGN for a while owned through the Tribune Company. So through serendipity, the explosive growth of money pouring into baseball because of new television audiences, baseball became invaluable programming, coincided with the fact that the players suddenly had the leverage to get a bigger piece of this growing pie. A piece that Kurt Flood would never benefit from. Missed the big paydays. Can't blame guys like Duke Snyder and Willie Mays and these others who, had they come along a generation later, would have been rich beyond the dreams of avarice. And Kurt's theoretical losses affected him in a very non-theoretical way. Uh, He left the country for a while. I think he was embittered, and I don't blame him. Uh, He had an embittering experience, and he moved, I believe, to Spain uh, before coming back and dying prematurely from cancer. Uh, I actually spoke at at his funeral among the speakers of me and Jesse Jackson, contrasting rhetorical styles, to say no more. Uh, But uh, Kurt Flood could be prickly and uh, good. Uh, Kurt Flood once said, I'm proud that God made my skin black. I wish he'd made it thicker. Uh, Baseball in America are better off because he was a little bit thin-skinned. If only... America knew it. Kurt Flood is one among the all-too-forgotten heroes that made America. It's an amazing thing, but understandable. Most people turn to sports and baseball as a pastime. They want the time to pass as a respite from the daily stuff and strife and technicalities of modern life. They say, "Get stop that nonsense don't talk about revenue sharing, don't talk about luxury taxes, don't talk about free agency, don't talk about this, that, the other thing, play ball. I can understand that. But it's too bad because there's a richness to the, if you will, the sociology of baseball that to the fan who's informed of it finds that his enjoyment of the game has deepened. I then proceeded to make the great mistake of voicing the proposition that baseball is like a microcosm of life. Well, I resist that kind of writing about baseball. Baseball reminds me of my father, of summer days of the Federal Reserve Board or whatever. It's just, baseball's baseball. It's a tough, demanding craft played by grown men, and by the way, it's also dangerous. If you play 162 of these games in 183 days, you'll get the picture. This is not boys of summer. These are men at work, and they are tough guys at the very top of a very steep athletic pyramid and trying to stay there. So in that sense, to me, it's the ultimate meritocracy. After 162 games, you are your record. 
There's no dodging it. It's all there in black and white. And uh, this, that's why it requires a particular toughness of the sort that uh, Kurt Flood had in abundance. And great job, Alex. Superb job by George Will. They're not the boys of summer. They're the men of work. And it is work, and it's hard work. And Kurt Flood, well, he got athletes rewarded for their work, at least in baseball. Kurt Flood's story, a remarkable story, a story of courage and one man, one man alone, changing things. This is Our American Stories. continue with our American stories and we love storytelling about just about everything and there's no more important book with more important stories written in history than the Bible and whether you're a Christian or a Jew or not it doesn't matter because the book has informed almost all of Western literature and my goodness it's just a terrific read and energy entrepreneur Tim Dunn is one heck of a storyteller and we love his stories about Bible verses and Bible stories. By the way, we're, we'd love to hear your favorite Bible story, how it's informed your life, and how it's shaped it. And send your favorite stories to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And today, Tim brings us one of his favorite Bible stories. There's this one verse in the Bible where God says three people that he particularly admires as examples. And one is Job. Another's Noah. And a third is Daniel. Now, that's a really interesting trio because Job was an ancient billionaire, business guy. Noah was a shipbuilder. I mean, he was a construction guy. And the third one is Daniel. And Daniel was a government bureaucrat. So let me just tell you Daniel's story, and people have maybe have heard Daniel's in the lion's den. And Daniel in the lion's den is a political hit job. So Daniel was from a noble family in Judah, and Judah was captured by the Babylonians during the time of the Babylonian Empire. And Babylon's practice at that time was to take some of the most promising young people and bring them into Babylon and train them up, send them to Babylon University, and then bring them into their service of the king. And Daniel was one of those young men. So he was probably also turned into a eunuch. The eunuch is someone who's been castrated. What the Persians and the Babylonians would do is they would take their civil servants and they would use castrated men because they couldn't produce an heir and so the idea was they wouldn't be a threat to the throne. So it was a way of minimizing political intrigue around the throne. That's your ancient world for you. The ancient world was a fairly brutal place. So you can imagine this young guy's taken whatever it was, a thousand miles away. He's taken, probably ripped away from his family. He's turned into a eunuch. I mean, that's all pretty traumatic. But Daniel was a guy that just said, you know, I, I, I'm going to serve God no matter what. 
So Daniel ended up being incredibly faithful and incredibly capable. And so he rose up in the ranks of the Babylonians. And then later in his life, the Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. So Daniel survived the takeover and actually became a servant of Darius, who was the king of the Persians. So it tells us that Darius set over the kingdom 120 satraps. Now, let me explain just a second what a satrap was. A satrap was a ruler in the kingdom, like a governor of a little area. Well, where would a satrap get all that money from? Well, the satraps collected the taxes. And the convention of the ancient world was that the tax collectors had a certain quota for the king, and then they could keep an amount for themselves. And of course, the trick is always to keep as much for yourself as possible and give as little to the king as possible. So now bear that in mind, and I'm going to actually read you a sentence from the book of Daniel. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be over the whole kingdom, and over these three governors, of whom Daniel was one, that the satraps might give account to them so that the king would suffer no loss. Then verse 3 here, of chapter 6, then this Daniel distinguished himself above the governors and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king gave thought to setting him over the whole realm. So the governors are not getting the skim, and the satraps are not getting the skim. It's all going to the king. So what would you expect to happen? Well. The governors and satraps sought to find some charge against Daniel concerning the kingdom. Well, so why would they want to do that? Because their ox is being gored. Their pockets are not being lined. Their ability to exercise cronyism and benefit themselves is being thwarted. Now, do we see any of that in our day? (laughs) I can tell you this is as common as dirt. Human nature never changes. So they're going to try to oust Daniel because he's getting in their way of lining their pockets with other people's money. But they investigated him, they did their opposition research on him, and they could not find anything wrong. So what do you do when you want to do a political hit job and you can't find anything wrong? You make something up. So here's what they did. They said, well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to trap him with his religion because we know he's really, really faithful and he prays every day. So these governors and satraps thronged before the king, it says, and said, King Darius, live forever. That's what you say to the king. All the governors of the kingdom and the administrators and satraps, all the governors. Now they're lying here because Daniel's not in the group with them. All the governors of the kingdom, the administrators and satraps, the counselors and advisors have consulted together to establish a royal statute and to make a firm decree that whoever petitions any god or man for 30 days except you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which does not alter. So the Persians had this law. The Persian Empire was pretty famous for its bureaucracy. And the Persians had this law that once the king decreed something, it couldn't be changed. Okay, So that wouldn't have been anything new. That was normal. So the king 
was flattered. Oh, well, thank you guys. Man, it's so nice. You're doing this. You're flattering me. So he signed the written decree. So now Daniel knew the writing was signed, so he knew then this was happening. And interestingly enough, he didn't jump in front of it and say, stop. That's interesting. So he went home and he prayed, just like he did every other day, in his upper room toward Jerusalem three times a day. So then the men assembled and found him praying. And they went before the king and said, Hey, king, remember this decree you signed that whoever petitions a god or man within 30 days would be cast in the den of lions? And he said, Yes, that's true, according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. So they answered and said to the king, That Daniel, who's one of the captives from Judah, he does not show due regard for you, O king, or for the decree you've signed, but he makes his petition three times a day. And then this is straight out of the Bible. And the king, when he heard these words, was greatly displeased with himself. He knew he had been had. He knew exactly what these guys were doing. He was thinking about putting Daniel over everybody because he was reducing the skim. And now he knows they're trying to get rid of Daniel. So the king went and got his lawyers. And he said, hey, you got to find a way out of this law. Find a way out. I mean, I, they, these guys have duped me. And the lawyers looked, and they looked, and they looked, and they couldn't find a loophole. So the king brings Daniel in. He says, I'm sorry. I really messed up, but I have to throw you in the den of lions because I made this law. So the king says, hey, I hope that God who you serve continually, he will deliver you. The king actually says this. He says, he will deliver you, which is really fascinating because that means... Darius is actually expressing faith in Daniel's God, which is really ironic since the story was everybody's supposed to worship him, and he succumbed to that. Okay, So then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. It's very fascinating. He couldn't sleep. Out of my way, Daniel, servant of the living God. So he got up early in the morning, and he comes to the edge of the tomb, and he says, Daniel... Has your God been able to save you? O king, live forever. My God has sent his angel, and he shut the mouth of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight. Now the king was exceedingly glad for him and commanded they should take Daniel up out of the lion den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den. No injury whatsoever was found on him because he believed in his God. So there was only like one night that Daniel had to face down the lions in that uncertainty. But I bet you it didn't feel like just one night. <laughs> but he had to spend the whole night. And that's the way a lot of these attacks are. Keeping the faith through a dark time, a dark night, is part of the lesson here keep the faith. And you don't know what's going to happen. It may be that you don't live through it. But if you keep the faith, there's a sunshine on the other side no matter what. And, and you know, it's interesting, both Nebuchadnezzar, who Nebuchadnezzar is a pagan king, and he has a chapter in Daniel that he wrote that's his testimony, where he praises God and says, this is the true and living God. And that was because of the testimony of Daniel. And Darius the king says, I believe this is the living God. So you have this guy, he's a bureaucrat. He's an honest bureaucrat that doesn't take graft and corruption. That's what he is. I mean, he just works in the government. He's a nine to five guy. He's not wealthy. He is powerful, but he's not a business guy. He's not a preacher. He's not a missionary. But look at the impact he makes. And this is one of the things I think we've messed up 
in the Christian church, and that is we've kind of gotten this idea that you know being a minister is holy and being a steel worker is not. Well, that's that's there's nothing biblical about that. Every job that anybody does is holy if we do it in a way that God asks us to do it, serving others. And you've been listening to Tim Dunn, and my goodness, this guy can teach anywhere, anything, because what a heck of a storyteller he is. And he's doing this just off his head, and I've met few people who can talk about the most important book ever written better than Tim Dunn. Again, looking for your Bible stories, how they've moved you, how they've informed you through your life, your favorite Bible stories, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. The story of Daniel, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. The term comic book is one of the great misnomers in entertainment, but they're not books, and they're not comical. This American industry has produced cultural icons that are recognized in every corner of the globe. By taking a look inside the pages of the comic book superhero, we can learn much about ourselves and the world around us. Here's Greg Hengler. Once there was a world without comic books. Like jazz and like baseball, like so much that is distinctly American, the comic book is born in the country's margins. In the early 1930s, two immigrant entrepreneurs, Harry Donenfeld and Jack Leibowitz, run a small publishing company putting out pulp magazines. Here's comic writers Mark Wade and Gerard Jones. Some people did jail time for these magazines in the 30s, so they were, they were pornography by the standards of the 30s. Harry Donenfeld almost went to jail. He had to talk one of his employees into taking the rap for him in exchange for a job for life. The handwriting came on the wall about 37, 38. He thought, you know what, maybe Spicy Pulps is not where I want to be if the law is going to be breathing down my neck. For a country in the midst of the Great Depression, newspaper comic strips, or funnies, are a popular, cheap, and humorous amusement. Comic books are simply reprints of newspaper comic strips. In 1935, a 45-year-old former U.S. Army major and prolific pulp magazine writer named Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson is inspired to put out his own comic book. But unlike the others, he will feature original comic material created by freelance cartoonists. January 11, 1935, you go to the newsstands in New York and you find on them Fun Comics Number 1, the very first DC comic. Major Malcolm Wheeler Nicholson had a sense not just that this is filler, but that new material might find its own audience. The major needs business partners, and Donenfeld and Leibowitz need less racy material to publish. In 1937, the three men enter into a partnership, and Detective Comics, the comic that would give DC its name, hits the stands. As the title promises, Detective Comics differs from comic strips and books. Humor is giving way to crime fighting. At the same time in Cleveland, Ohio, two high school students, sons of Jewish immigrants, are escaping the struggles of their everyday lives into a fantasy world of their own making. Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster are shy and unpopular in school. 
unsuccessful with the girls and insecure about their bespectacled appearance and physical abilities. They lose themselves in science fiction magazines and nurture fantasies of power and success. Here's comic illustrator Arlen Schumer and comic book historian Danny Fingeroth. I think it was the year 1934. It was a hot summer night and Jerry Siegel, the teenage writer, couldn't sleep at night. He was tossing and turning. He had this dream in which he kept having flashes of a character that would become a combination of Samson and Hercules and a dozen other characters from the Bible to the comic strips to the serials in the movie theater. He wrote it all down. The very next morning, he runs over to his friend Joe Schuster's house, his artist friend, and he tells him the story of this superheroic character. And Joe Schuster starts making the original drawings. Joe Schuster was a bodybuilder and fascinated with uh, bodybuilding magazines, fascinated with images of acrobats, the tights, the cape. You can see all that in Superman's costume. Jerry Siegel's father died in a robbery when Jerry was a teenager. And the perpetrators were never caught. So he had this very immediate, visceral reason to hate crime. And I think Superman for him was a character who could, in a fantasy way, prevent things like that from happening. Here's Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. I was quite meek and I was quite mild, and I thought, gee, wouldn't it be great if I was a mighty person and his girls didn't know that this clot here is really somebody special. I was very small, and I was always pushed around by bullies and so forth, so that was one of my dreams. I took courses in bodybuilding and weightlifting. I don't know if it helped, but I made an effort. In the artistic world of the 1930s, comic books ranked just above the adult magazine industry. Comic strip creators are very rich celebrities. Guys like Chester Gould with Dick Tracy, Al Cap with Little Abner, Alex Raymond with Flash Gordon, and Hal Foster with Tarzan. Siegel and Schuster see this as a golden opportunity. They submit their Superman creation to newspaper editors across the country, and in turn, every one of them promptly rejects it, some more than once. Here's DC artist Neil Adams. Nobody liked it. This was a, an anomaly. This was, I mean, nobody else was doing it. Everybody was doing cowboys, detective, science fiction type things. These two 17-year-old Jewish kids in Cleveland, Ohio, created a genre. Meanwhile, Donenfeld and Leibowitz are about to launch a new DC comic book title they call Action Comics. Having all but given up hope of ever seeing Superman in newspaper comics, Siegel and Schuster, now both 23, sell the rights of Superman to DC for $130 and go to work. 
June 1938, the first issue of Action Comics is born. And there he is on the cover, the red-caped crusader in blue tights with a signature S emblazoned on his chest, holding an automobile above his head. That 10-cent comic book sold for over 3.2 million in 2014. Leibowitz cautiously has 200,000 copies printed, but receives dealer's requests for more. He keeps the print run small until the fourth issue sells out. By the seventh issue, Action Comics is selling over half a million copies each month. And when we come back, more of this remarkable American story. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we continue with our story of comic superheroes. In 1939, Siegel and Schuster realize their dream when the two are asked to create a daily Superman newspaper comic strip and a color page for Sunday. Then DC did something unprecedented. They launched Superman the first comic book title devoted entirely to a single character. Here's the Jimi Hendrix of comic book art, Jim Sterenko. The elements that Siegel and Schuster adopted into this comic strip set the pace for virtually everything to come afterward. Superman. The kids in America. <laughs> They went ape. Within two years, these guys had changed the world. The comic book publishers, every one of them said, make superheroes. Superman represents President Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal as imagined by those who champion it, without flaws or negative consequences. The young Jewish creators also define their superhero from another planet by what is happening in Nazi Germany. Here's the former president and publisher at DC Comics, Paul Levitz and Jerry Siegel. These are families that have come over from Europe and they're watching whoever they left behind disappear in a very scary fashion. So the characters live for them. Nazism was, uh, you know, rising up and uh, a lot of innocent people were being uh, killed. Countries were being invaded, a lot of innocents uh, slaughtered. And I felt that the world desperately needed a crusader, if only a fictional one. Here's comic writer Dwayne McDuffie. Superman was about the immigrant experience in a very, very powerful way. It's the kid from the old country who brings the best values from the old country, in this case, the old planet, to America, adds it to the pot, and accepts the best part of America. It's a really powerful set of ideas that was really important to people in the 30s and 40s. The newsstand dealers couldn't get enough. Within three issues, they were up to a million copies. It was a phenomenon. There was never anything like it. There was that supermania that hit in 1939 and 1940. 
We have not seen anything like it in American pop culture since. Beatlemania was not that big. Over 100,000 boys and girls in the United States and Canada are members of the Supermen of America. One mother says... I should like to thank the publishers of Action Comics magazine for including a health page in every issue. Billy has been eating his cereal and drinking his milk regularly since Superman told him to do so. Say, he can do about anything, can't he? Everywhere you go, Superman, he's in your newspaper strip, he's on your radio, there's short cartoons in your theater, he's on clothing, you know, he's in the Macy's Day Parade as a balloon, he's at the World's Fair in costume. It's Superman Day at the World's Fair. It's a big deal. Everybody would have known Superman, from your grandmother right down to the immigrant who just got off of Ellis Island. Everybody would have known. DC is quick to exploit the Superman formula. Editors send out a call to create a second costume superhero to match Superman's success. For the poor 18-year-old Jewish cartoonist from the Bronx named Bob Kane, this call does not go unnoticed. Here's Bob Kane. And at DC Comics at that time, the editor came over to me and he said, would you like to create another a superhero in the uh, genre of Superman? And um, let's see, I was making about $25 a week. And I said, how much does Siegel and Schuster, who created Superman make? Well, they make $800 a week apiece. I said, for that kind of money, you'll have a superhero on Monday. By Monday morning, you know, Kane comes back to his editor, Vince Sullivan, and says, here's what I got. And Vince Sullivan knew something good when he saw it. And he said, see, I love it. What do you call it? I said, that's a good question, Vince. <laughs> Maybe we'll call it the Bat-Hyphenated Man. Less than a year after Superman's debut, DC introduced the Batman. I wanted to be Bruce Wayne in my reverie. Instead of a poor kid, I imagined I'd like to be a rich playboy and fight crime at night. I can probably count on the fingers of one hand the comic book characters that have ever been created by affluent, successful people. The characters of longevity always come from a place of oppression, always come from a, a place of wanting to break out of the world that you're in. Here's comic artist Erwin Hassan. We all were kids from the Bronx. We were all a bunch of schmucks, being talking Jewish, schmucks. We were innocent talented guys who schmucks we never drew ourselves why why should we draw poor little guys what would inspire us to draw poor little guys comic books is an industry made up of people who aren't accepted who desperately want to be accepted so they desperately want to be like mainstream America. It's why Batman's a millionaire and Superman is a farmer, real mainstream, real, real, real America. So they imprint themselves on heroic images that embody all the stuff they wish they were, rich and handsome and muscular and able to handle any situation and uh, not tongue-tied. The public loved Batman. The public embraced Batman very quickly especially when you get into the fourth or fifth Batman adventure and you start to outline his origins. The classic scene of young Bruce Wayne with his parents out behind a theater and his parents are gunned down before his young eyes and that's the moment that made him want to turn into Batman. That's why Batman works so well. Whatever he does, you understand why he does it. He's lost his parents at a random crime in the city and he wants to make sure that no one else suffers the same horror that he had to go through. 
Batman's popularity soon rivals Superman's, and business at DC is booming. Within two years, you had Superman, who was so powerful that he could move planets, and then you had Batman, who had no powers at all. He was the opposite. All the other characters fit in between these two characters. In 1939, a young pulp magazine publisher named Martin Goodman launches an enduring enterprise called Marvel Comics. He puts the project under the editorial direction of his hard-working teenage nephew, Stanley Lieber, who writes comic books under the pseudonym of Stan Lee. Here's Stan Lee. Comic books were not respected in those days. I thought someday I would be a writer and I would write books. And I didn't want to use my name on these comics, this name that would one day appear on the great American novel. So I just shortened my name, which had been Stanley Martin Lieber. I shortened the first name, Stanley, to Stan Lee, so that I could save my name for these great things I would later write. A year after launching, Stan Lee creates Marvel's first star superhero, whose popularity comes to rival Superman himself. The ingeniously simple premise behind the red and gold costumed Captain Marvel was an orphan newsboy named Billy Batson, who becomes the most powerful superhuman adult imaginable, merely by speaking the magic word, Shazam. The letters stand for the seven immortal heroes, Solomon, Hercules, Atlas, Zeus, Achilles, and Mercury. DC responds to Captain Marvel's popularity by suing Marvel for alleged copyright infringement of Superman. The legal battle drags on for 12 years until 1953, when inevitably, DC's Man of Steel wins, as he always does. In 1939, the war in Europe has begun. Even though America isn't involved yet, many superheroes are. Months after the Hitler-Stalin Pact in February 1940, Superman decides to fly himself into enemy territory. The moment you put him in Nazi Germany, you know, war is over. In fact, Look Magazine did a piece with Siegel and Schuster early on. The question was, how would Superman end the war? And the answer was, he flies over, he grabs Hitler by the scruff of the neck, he flies to Russia, grabs Stalin, takes them before the world court. And that's two pages, by the way. So Superman could have ended the war in apparently 14 panels of comics. Superman's victory made it into the hands of Nazi propaganda minister Joseph Goebbels, who denounces Superman as a Jew and mocks its creators as physically and intellectually circumcised. And when we come back, we continue this remarkable American story. By the way, just to hear Stanley Lee talk about his own embarrassment, putting his actual real name, Stanley Lieber, on these comic books, because one day he was going to be the next Ernest Hemingway. Well, you don't hear Stan Lee saying that anymore or any of these guys in this area of work, because this is literature and of the highest caliber and brand around the world. When we continue more on comic book superheroes here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue with the story of comic book superheroes, the way it all began here in the United States. And by the way, if you like what you hear, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and sign up for our podcast. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's get back to the story. Nine months before the United States would officially enter World War II, two Jewish cartoonists create a character who is ready to take on the Nazis, who bursts on the scene with an unforgettable cover. Here's Jim Starenko and comic historian Bradford Wright. Captain America threw a smashing right cross to the jaw of Adolf Hitler. That said everything about the character. They got hate mail for that. Uh, They got hate mail from isolationists. Captain America exploded on the newsstand and sold out of his first issue. In the spring of 1941, Joe Simon and Jack Kirby mixed their patriotic super soldier with political prophecy when Captain America stops an unnamed Asian power from destroying the U.S. Pacific Fleet seven months before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Then, in 1941, DC launches Wonder Woman, the statuesque Amazon wrapped in the American flag. Here's comic writer and editor Louise Simonson. She's not an unreasonable icon to have been created. During World War II, women took over a lot of male roles. She's a Rosie the Riveter, only a goddess. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. When the Japanese actually do cripple the Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, the men in tights echo the nations. Batman delivers guns to the men on the front line, and Wonder Woman uses the heads of Hitler, Hirohito, and Mussolini as bowling pins. Here's comic creator Michael Chabon and Stan Lee. The superheroes went off to war with great gusto. Week after week, month after month, just pounding the hell out of the Nazis. The stories had so much pro-American propaganda that you'd almost think they were subsidized by the government, but it was just, we felt we had to do that. And then something very interesting happened, which was that comic books were included in care packages that were sent to soldiers, along with chocolate and cigarettes, and comic books became part of the standard reading material for GIs serving in the Second World War, and they liked them. Many of the brightest talents in the comic industry joined their superhero creations in the fight. Many enlist. Not all come back. Bert Christman was a young illustrator who, with Garner Fox, created Sandman. But his real love was flying. His real love was adventure. So he joined the Flying Tigers in World War II and tragically was shot down over Burma in the line of service. Stan Lee also served. I felt I can't be writing about all these comic book heroes and not be fighting myself. After victory in 1945, America welcomes home its real-life heroes. But the star-spangled morale boosters are no longer needed, nor wanted. Most get canceled by 1951, including 
Captain America. There are only three superheroes who are doing well. Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman. These three American icons carry the comic book industry on their backs to unprecedented heights when sales reach 100 million a month in 1953. Most of this success is due to DC following their audience to a brand new medium, television. Faster than a speeding bullet. In the 1940s, Superman's mission is defined one way. Superman fights a never-ending battle for truth and justice. By the 1950s and the, uh, the introduction of the Superman television show, of course, it became truth, justice, and the American way. That phrase, the American way, was all over the place in the 1950s because now we're stuck in a Cold War. In 1954, superheroes faced their greatest battle, not against a mad scientist or a foreign enemy, but against the United States Senate. Both houses of the U.S. Senate hold hearings on the nefarious effects of comic books on young minds. Comic books are an important contributing factor in many cases of juvenile delinquency. The hearings are a major blow for the comic book industry. Fearing the coercive effects of government censorship and in an effort to survive, most of the comic book publishers form the Comics Code Authority, a self-governing organization that will police each issue and grant seals of approval. At that time, the comic books were so attacked for the material that they were doing, or if that comic code emblem was not on the book, the book did not get distributed. Just one year after the code's implementation, sales plunge by 75%. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. In the 1960s, we're going to the moon, we're already in Vietnam, and because of the government's heavy hand, there are millions of kids who are unfamiliar with comic books. But on a golf course in New York, superhero history is about to change when the publisher of DC Comics, Jack Leibowitz, informs the publisher of Marvel Comics, Martin Goodman, that they are having great success with their latest comic, The Justice League which combines the forces of Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Flash, Green Lantern, and Aquaman to fight against the forces of evil. Marvel's publisher takes the DC success story to Stan Lee. Lee takes it to his wife. Here's Stan Lee. I had been doing these comics for about 20 years or so, and I really had had it up to here. I felt I want to quit and try something else. I told my wife, so she said, you know, Stan, before you quit, why don't you do one book the way you'd like to do it? Something for people, hopefully, with a higher IQ. I came up with the Fantastic Four. They were trying to be the first people to reach the moon. I had them take a spaceship. The ship is belted by cosmic rays, and they have to crash land. And because of the cosmic rays, each of them got a different power. Incredible. Inspired by the space race between the Americans and the Soviet Union, 
These will be the first superheroes invented out of the atomic age. Mr. Fantastic would over-explain everything the way I tend to do. The thing would say, will you shut up? We got it already. And, and he and the torch were always arguing and fighting. The thing hated being the thing. And the idea of superheroes hating being a superhero was really a novelty. And it produced a lot of psychological richness, at least comparatively speaking, uh, that had not been seen in comic books before. And so it was with the creation of the Fantastic Four that uh, comic books really uh, entered into the modern era. Marvel's decision to cast outsiders as heroes continues when in 1962, Stan Lee unleashes another atomic-aged anti-hero, the Incredible Hulk. I am the least scientific person you'll ever know. So I tried to seem scientific with our characters. I had the Hulk, and he was inundated by gamma rays. That's how he became the Hulk. Now, I wouldn't know a gamma ray if I saw it. I don't know what a gamma ray is, but if it sounds good, I'll use it. And what an American voice, what an American story. The 20th century right into the 21st. Comic book superheroes, here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and now for the final part of this great story about, well, American comic book superheroes, and so much of it, as we learned, had to do with World War II and these giant villains on the world stage, Hitler and Stalin. And now we're moving along into the 60s and 70s and up to the present. Let's go and return back to where we last left off. Marvel had suddenly emerged because Stan Lee created characters with an additional dimension to them. That is, superheroes with problems. This gives Stan Lee an idea. Why not weave a new kind of tale? A teenage superhero. Lee pitches the idea to his boss at Marvel. You say that he's a teenager? A hero can only be an adult. Teenagers are sidekicks. And you say you want him to have problems. Stan, don't you know what a hero is? It's interesting that in the 1930s, uh, you had the country seemingly falling apart. And yet you had these superheroes come in that were totally confident in their ability to resolve these problems. And then in the Kennedy years, the early 60s, things seemed to be fairly stable. And yet you had the Marvel superheroes come in who were vulnerable and, and confused and disoriented. The difference was the baby boomers. They were notoriously self-absorbed. <laughs> All this was magnified in, in popular culture geared towards youth. James Dean, for example, you know, he may look tough on the outside, but his heart is breaking and he wants to be accepted and he's unsure and his parents don't understand him, the world doesn't understand him. Peter Parker is a shy science student who lives with his aunt and uncle. He's bitten by a radioactive spider that gives him spider-like powers. 
Peter doesn't even consider fighting crime. He goes into show business. But when he fails to stop a thief who later murders his uncle, Peter Parker learns that in this world, with great power, there must also come great responsibility. What makes Spider-Man such an enduring character isn't Spider-Man, it's Peter Parker. Clark Kent was in disguise. Peter Parker was a fact. He was a 98-pound weakling. His life sucked. Even if you have the ability to, you know, swing from skyscrapers over the streets of New York, it doesn't help. That endures in the character Spider-Man to this day. In spite of Stan Lee's pessimistic publisher, Spider-Man premieres in the summer of 1962 and goes on to become Marvel's greatest success, second only to DC's Superman. Put simply, story formulas that appeal to the widest audiences tend to proliferate and endure, while those that do not, do neither. Comic books succeed or fail on the merits of their storytelling. But there is one issue that almost every American could rally around, the drug epidemic. In 1971, the Nixon administration reaches out to Stan Lee about doing a Spider-Man series on the dangers of drugs. Here's Stan Lee. We sent that book to the Comic Code office as we were sending all the books, and they rejected the book. I said, why? They said, you're not allowed to mention drugs in the comics. I said, but we're not telling the kids to take drugs. It's an anti-drug message. Sorry. So I was so proud of my publisher. I told him about it, and I said, Martin, I think we ought to put the book out without the seal of approval. He said, do it, Stan. We got more mail from teachers and parents and doctors and everybody all over the country saying how much they loved that book and how delighted they were. Within a week, they had a new meeting of the Comics Code Authority, which was all the publishers, the self-regulating agency, and they rewrote the Comics Code. They rewrote it to such an extent that it's gone. When it comes to the first superhero, Superman's durability is proven once again, this time on the big screen, and stars the 25-year-old Juilliard graduate Christopher Reeve. Here's Christopher Reeve. What sets Superman apart is that he has the wisdom to use his power for good. He's got the kind of maturity, or he's got the innocence, really, to look at the world very, very simply. And that's what makes him so different. When he says, I'm here to fight for truth and justice in the American way, everybody goes, <laughs> you know, but he's not kidding. It was just so perfectly cast. Christopher Reeve is Superman. Nobody else can touch the hem of that cape. It's all right, nothing to get worried about. Here is a character in a world where I didn't feel like I was being paid attention to, in a world where I didn't feel like I mattered. Here is somebody who cares about everybody. Whether you're rich or poor or black or white, Superman cares about everybody. And just in case it ever comes up in trivia, the first words uttered to the courteous Cape Crusader come from a star-struck pimp who sounds like Ric Flair. The 1978 Superman motion picture is one of the biggest moneymakers in Warner Brothers film history to date. 
The movie is nominated for three Academy Awards and a new wave of supermania hits in the wake of the film's success. A wave that rolls into three sequels. I've got you. In the closing years of the Cold War, inflation is high and President Jimmy Carter is diagnosing Americans as having a crisis of confidence. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss of a unity of purpose for our nation. The comic book industry sees a desperate need for strength, confidence, and the courage to use force in the face of evil. Writer-artist Frank Miller gets his big break in 1979, when at the age of 22, when he revives a 1970s vigilante called The Punisher, and actually kills people. In the 1970s, there was a growing backlash against crime waves, against what some considered the permissiveness uh, that had crept into American society in the 60s and 70s. And this backlash found reflection in some popular vigilante anti-heroes. In Hollywood, for example, you had the Dirty Harry films. Uh, you could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? In comic books, you had a character like the Punisher. The Punisher was a Vietnam veteran who returned home to find his family murdered uh, in, an, in a gangland killing. Uh, he undertook a one-man war against crime, saying that justice you know, had failed to punish the guilty. So he's going to exact justice himself. Readers love The Punisher, and Marvel meets their demand. There are cities in Michigan. Oh, shut up. Here again is comic book historian Bradford Wright. People voted for Reagan because he kicked butt, because he came on as a tough guy. And I think that attitude was mirrored in superheroes of the 80s. It's not to say the people who wrote The Punisher believed that, but I think they did tap into a popular mood. In the 1990s, the comic book industry make another attempt to captivate readers. Sex, cynicism, and violence reach a level of occurrence never seen before. By 1993, Thousands of comic book stores close. Hundreds of creators lose their jobs. And by 1996, Marvel files for bankruptcy. Monthly sales fall from 38 million to 7 million. Here's comic writer Marv Wolfman and Dwayne McDuffie. They got darker and darker and darker, and they forgot the core of what most of these superhero comics are, which is about triumphing over adversity. The only way you could tell the villains from the heroes was by whose logo was on the cover. I mean, their behavior was evil, not morally ambiguous. These guys were just flat out, oh, I'm going to kill this guy. He's a guard. The call to action against the dark moral ambiguity will overtake not just the comic book universe, but the real world. One September morning. Here's the CEO of Marvel Comics, Avi Arad. This picture of Spider-Man looking at ground zero, it's compelling, it's emotional. He represents all of us. DC echoes Marvel's sentiment with Superman's response while he gazes at a giant collage of the fallen 9-11 heroes. The one-word bubble reads... Wow. Superheroes endure because 
They represent basic American beliefs, that there are choices to make between good and evil, that individuals can triumph over adversity. The ones that work are archetypes, were made by people who believed and cared. Batman will still be around in a hundred years' time. Comic book writers and artists are doing the same thing that storytellers did drawing the pictures on the caves at Lascaux. We're using story to create context for life. Superheroes have always flourished in times of the greatest American adversity. In the Depression era, we were afraid of whether or not we would be able to put food on the table. We were afraid of being involved in a great world war that would take our freedom away. In the atomic age, we were afraid of radiation. Today, we're afraid of terrorist attacks. And in all of those eras of history, that's when superheroes have enjoyed their greatest resurgence. They're our mythology, they're our heroes. We need ideals to look up to. And you know, they're not gonna let us down. Superman's not gonna let us down. Superman's always gonna be there. To people all over the world, superheroes embody the values, hopes, and dreams of the greatest nation on the planet. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And if you like what you heard, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. There's so much more, hundreds of hours of podcasts free for all to hear. This is Our American Stories.